Um, now, on the sheet in front of you, you'll notice that today's message is entitled, So Let It Be Written. Um, now, in the movie, The Ten Commandments, when I grew up, uh, that line stuck in my head because Moses would say, so let it be written, so let it be done. Anybody remember that? It was kind of the cool way he said it. I think that's what stuck in my mind. He has a cool voice. And so when he shared that, he said, so let it be written, so let it be done. And that is so appropriate for today's message, because what is written in the word of God will come to pass. That's just a fact. It's what's going to occur now, today we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, an ancient city and a prophecy, but we're also going to make it very applicable, and I'll explain that in just a moment. But I realize that when I read the Old Testament, or the New Testament for that matter, I seem to think they're really stupid. Now, that would show that I am arrogant, and that is probably true. So, as I look at them, I begin to go, really, God just parted the waters right in front of you. He just made this huge wall of water. You walk through on dry ground. You're stuck. The Egyptians are behind you. God does this amazing move for you to get through. And then you doubt him just around the next turn. Really? Now you're immediately saying God isn't real. He's not going to help you. He's not going to save you. And I go, gosh, how stupid do you have to be to be able to see what you see and still begin to doubt God? And then I reflected on my own life. And I went, oh, shoot, I'm stupid, too. That was a drag. So now I realize, wait a second, I'm doing the same thing. God does these amazing things, shares amazing revelations, opens up my eyes to all sorts of stuff. I'm all excited about him. I'm worshiping him. I'm in a groove. I'm reading my the word of God. And then all of a sudden, two months later, I'm completely involved in something I shouldn't be involved in. It's like, where did, where did that go? Why, why suddenly is God so real one moment and then all of a sudden I pretend like he's not real the next? Or one moment I see that scripture, man, that really applies to me. That's awesome. I'm growing. It's amazing. And then the next week I'm locked up in selfishness, all about me, doubt. What is going on with us? You know, at some point, I would hope that all of us mature to a place, I'm hoping to mature to the place, where I can read God's Word and have it be true every time. Not just when I feel like it, not just on the whim of an emotion, but to read it and go, this is real, this is true for me. The fill in the blank in front of you is really the heart of my whole message, so once you write that down, you can go to sleep. It's this... God's word is always true, even in the details. God's word is always true, even in the details. Now, we may not know how to interpret the details, but the details are accurate. Consider for a moment all the prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Imagine that you're a Hebrew scholar and you were in the ancient world and you read all this stuff from the prophets of old and... It would talk about the suffering servant. It would talk about this mighty victor that would bring Israel back up to the top. And you begin to read all these things and you're going, well, wait a second. I get the details. I get that in some way a Messiah will save me from my sin. I get in some way that a Messiah will come and set us free and make us victorious. But there's no way in the world that's the same guy. You understand? You're looking at the details. You know the details may be accurate. You just can't figure out how they're going to work together. As a matter of fact, that's why the majority of scholars throughout histories and the Jewish community kept determining it's two guys, at least. 
You got the suffering guy that dies. Then you got the mighty victor. They must be two men. No one in their wildest imagination would have concocted this idea that the Messiah would be one individual where the Son of God comes into the world dies for the sins of the people, is buried, on the third day rises again, ascends to the right hand of the Father, and comes back again. No one would have thought of that. So even though we don't understand how the details work out, even though we don't understand how it's all going to play out like as in Revelation, the facts are still true. The details are still accurate. And it is our job to receive the word of God as truth. Amen? I think that's our responsibility. Now, today's message is going to be extremely schizophrenic, right? Here's why. We're going to begin with an Old Testament examination of the nation city of Tyre. T-Y-R-E. We're going to talk about that and find out how they were on God's radar and he used three different prophets of the Old Testament to fire out messages to them and messages of judgment and warning and what happened through history. That's going to be a big piece of today. And then right when you get totally bored, we're going to turn, right? We're going to turn on a dime and begin to see how all of that stuff that seemingly seems so unrelated is going to apply to us today. And we're going to begin to read scripture with brand new eyes. So I hope you're ready for that. If so, would you turn with me to the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament? Ezekiel chapter 26, page 605. Ezekiel chapter 26, page 605. I'm going to go ahead and turn there as well. I could either read it out of my notes or I could look scholarly by reading it out of the Bible. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. Ezekiel 26, verse 1, page 605. Now, as I begin, give you a little background. The nation city that I'm talking about, the city of Tyre, is still around to some degree. Um, It's known more for a city that has kind of emerged out of it than the original city, and it's in Lebanon. Okay, so if we're looking at a map and we're looking at the Mediterranean coast there and we have Israel, above Israel is Syria and a portion of that is Lebanon. So if you remember back, the PLO was fighting and all that, that's all the same area. That is the city nation of Tyre. Okay, and so we're going to learn a lot about that today. As a matter of fact, they were always in ancient world, they were always kind of teamed up with their sister city, Sidon. So it would be Tyre and Sidon. They were always kind of known together. They were allies. Well, I think that for many of us, and certainly throughout history, we all believe that in some way God has his interest on Israel and maybe on America because we're super egocentric that way. We think everything is about America, right? Which I always laugh when people talk about Revelation. It's all about America. That usually makes me chuckle because I'm thinking, really? We're the youngest nation. It's not like we just get wiped off the face of the earth. Why are we even around in the whole discussions of Revelation? But I understand. I understand it's a big deal to us, right? Because we live here. But we seem to think that in some way God has all his attention on Israel, but he doesn't care about any of the other nations. 
Who cares what they do? They got a free for all. They're allowed to go and be disobedient and run around and play their own world and believe in their own gods. And oh, so and so's polytheistic or so and so believes this. And it's no big deal to God because he's only interested in Israel. That's garbage. That's not true. God has his sights set on every nation of the world. And he will hold them accountable to a standard to respond to their God. Whether they choose to follow him or not is a whole different issue. But they will be held accountable. Will America be held accountable? You better believe it. Every nation will be held accountable. And indeed, this nation of Tyre in the ancient world was on God's radar. What they thought, how they acted, what they believed, all mattered to him. But they thought they were completely autonomous and independent. They didn't care anything about the Israel God or who he may or may not be. They didn't think they had to answer to anybody. They're the number one nation to trade with. They're the ones that are right on the coast. So all the boats come in off the water and they all go through Tyre and trade their wares and make Tyre an incredibly wealthy, prosperous city. And they thought, we're doing our own thing. That whole Israel thing, that's their deal. That's not our deal. As a matter of fact, even though we get money from them through trade, bottom line, don't care much about them. And honestly, they irritate us because they're different. They didn't like Israel. They didn't care anything about them. But God was still watching them. God still had an expectation on Tyre to serve him. And when nations do not collectively serve God, there are consequences to that. Because he is still God of the universe. Amen. Sure enough, the first time Tyre comes on the prophetic circuit or the first time he shows up in scripture to get a word of warning is through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived 2,700 years ago. So this was quite a long time ago. And he received the message about the city of Tyre that they were cocky and arrogant and wealthy and prosperous. And yet they would be devastated for the period of 70 years, the span of a king's life. Then God's going to raise them back up and they're going to learn nothing from it. They're going to go right back to the way they always lived. They're going to go right back to acting completely ungodly. And he's marking it out saying, I'm watching you. Watch your heart, watch your attitude. You do not just get to do whatever you want to do. Well, then, a hundred years later, Ezekiel, the second prophet, to talk about Tyre, comes on the scene. We're now from 698 B.C. or around there when Isaiah spoke to 598 B.C. We're getting closer to today. A hundred years later, something significant happened in 598 to 596 B.C. to Israel. What was that? Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonian Empire. That was a big deal. Remember I told you last week there was a north and a south. The north was taken at 722 B.C. by the Assyrian Empire, the south was still hanging out. 586, wiped out by the Babylonian Empire underneath Nebuchadnezzar. That's where we got Daniel from. Remember that whole story last week? Sure enough, he wiped out Israel. What did the nations around Israel think when Babylon wiped out Jerusalem? They reacted the same way that we react when a nation goes down on the other side of the world. Don't care. We look and we go, huh, that's interesting. Look on the front newspaper. Oh, that's weird. Someone got invaded. Oh, well, 
We move on. Most of them didn't care, but in some ways they were close enough to them to where there was a bit of an irritant and they finally went, you know what? They're kind of our competitors. They got knocked out right on. That just means we got more opportunity. So they got sacked. Big deal. That just puts more trade into our back pocket. We're good with that. So you know what? Good riddance, Jerusalem. I don't even care about you. Well, God heard those thoughts. God heard that collective, oh, good. And God reacted. And that is the prophecy before us now. Ezekiel chapter 26, verse 1. It reads like this. In the 11th year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel said, son of man, because Tyre has said of Jerusalem, aha, the gate to the nations is broken and its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Tyre. And I will bring many nations against you like the sea casting up its waves. How many nations are going to come against them? Many. That's exactly what he says. It's written down. Will they? We're going to find out throughout the years of history that we study. It says they will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I will what? Scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Out of the sea, she will become a place to spread what? Fishnets. For I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. She will become plunder for the nations and her settlements on the mainland will be ravaged by the sword. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. From the north, I am going to bring against Tyre, who? Nebuchadnezzar. King of Babylon, king of kings with horses and chariots, with horsemen and a great army. He will ravage your settlements on the mainland with a sword. He will set up siege works against you, build a ramp up to your walls, raise his shields against you. He will direct the blows of his battering rams against your walls and demolish your towers with his weapons. His horses will be so many that they will cover you with dust. Your walls will tremble at the noise of the war horses, wagons, and chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city whose walls have been broken through. The hooves of his horses will trample all your streets. He will kill your people with a sword. Your strong pillars will fall to the ground. They will plunder your wealth and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones, timber, and rubble into where? The sea. I will put an end to your noisy songs and the music of your harps will be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock and you will become a place to spread fishnets. You will never be rebuilt for I, Yahweh, have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Tyre. Will not the coastlands tremble at the sound of your fall when the wounded groan and the slaughter takes place in you? Then all the princes of the coast will step down from their thrones, lay aside their robes and take off their embroidered garments clothed with terror. They will sit on the ground, trembling every moment, appalled at you. 
Then they will take up a lament concerning you and say to you how you are destroyed, O city of renown, peopled by men of the sea. You are a power on the seas, you and your citizens. You put your terror on all who live there. Now the coastlands tremble on the day of your fall. The islands in the sea are terrified at your collapse. This is what the sovereign Lord says. When I make you a desolate city, like cities no longer inhabited, when I bring the ocean depths over you and its vast waters cover you, then I will bring you down with those who go down to the pit to the people of long ago. I will make you dwell in the earth below as in ancient ruins with those who go down to the pit and you will not return or take your place in the land of the living. I will bring you to a horrible end and you will be no more. You will be sought, but you will never again be found, declares the sovereign Lord. Would you pray with me for the word? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this morning that we might be able to see in your word revelations, both what we deem as the past, but they saw as the future. I want to praise you that your word is right, that it is true, that you are mighty. I ask that you open up your word to us today, that no matter where we read in it this morning, Lord, that it would have dramatic impact on our lives. Father, show us who you are, that we might love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's pretty dramatic, yeah? I mean, that's pretty intense. That's the whole kind of, I'm going to smash you down, you're never going to rise up again. But here's what's interesting. There's a few things we can piece together about the prophecy. First of all, it says, I will bring many nations against you. But on the other hand, it says you will be rebuilt no more. How do those two work together? Because you kind of look at them and you go, well, if you're bringing many nations, doesn't that imply you get taken over a whole bunch of different times? Or are they all going to come at you at once? So we would have automatically thought, well, maybe they're all going to come at once and then they'll be devastated and never be rebuilt. Well, did it say that? As a matter of fact, it seems to suggest over and over that there is a rebuilding process and another tearing down process. But is it accurate in the details? When it says, I will bring many nations against you, did many nations come against Tyre? Well, here's history at a glance. Not only did Nebuchadnezzar storm it, but Greece stormed it through Alexander the Great. The Muslims came in, stormed Tyre. The Christians stormed Tyre during the Crusade era. Egypt stormed Tyre. The Turks stormed Tyre. They got beat up every time. No matter how many times they have tried to rebuild, they've been crushed over and over and over again. They cannot rise back up. Even 2,500 years later, they still can't rise up. It's funny because you can, uh, on the phone, Mark Henkel, the pastor that was doing the announcements, he was Googling it, Google Earth, and he was checking and look at, you can look at Tyre and it will show you a satellite photo down and you'll begin to see some of what I'm talking about today. The evidence remains there in front of us, but how did it occur? Remember, they laughed at Jerusalem because it was stormed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Well, a year before Nebuchadnezzar was on his next move, Ezekiel received another vision, another word from God. And that is found in chapter 29. Can you turn with me there? We just read 26. Let's read 29. Just a couple verses. 
Now, if our dates are correct, he received this vision a year before it occurred, but he speaks as if it is past. Take a look at this. We're in chapter 29. Uh, what are we at? Verse 7. 29 verse 17. Oh, how did I get that? Huh, 17. I guess that's not a 7. That's a 17. Here we go. In the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, drove his army in a hard campaign against Tyre. Every head was rubbed bare, every shoulder made raw. Yet he and his army got no reward from the campaign he led against Tyre. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to give Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he'll carry off its wealth. He will loot and plunder the land as pay for his army. I have given him Egypt as a reward for his efforts because he and his army did it for who? Did it for me, declares the sovereign Lord. If it is accurate, whether it's a description of it or a prophecy of it, he merely said this. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in and storm you. And when he does, he's not going to get out of it what he assumes. You go, what does that mean? His first prophecy happened three years before Nebuchadnezzar swept in and took it. Indeed, right after hitting Israel, he did a couple other moves and he swept down in from the north and destroyed Tyre. He laid a 13-year siege on the city. It was a massive invasion. In our world, we don't do anything for 13 years. I mean, for us, we try to build this building and we're kind of like after a couple months, can't you hurry up? Right. I mean, everything for us is go, go, go. Got to happen. Got to happen. Back then they had to do it the old school way. They knew you can't get through the walls. So they would set up long term camps. They would set up 13 years of attack and you siege it. You lock it off. They can't get in or get out of their city. Well, the way that Tyre worked was there was a mainland part of the city and then a smaller portion out on an island a half mile off coast. He storms his mainland city in an aggression to take over the whole spot and he launches his whole long siege and it was brutal. But when he finally broke through, guess what happened? What did the Bible say he found when he got inside? He didn't get anything. Why? Because they all escaped out the back. They all went to the island. Somehow along the way, while he's doing this 13 year siege, they all took off. So they're all hanging out on the island. He's busy storming the mainland, finally breaks through and gets nothing for it. And God said, thank you. I just need you to tear down that city. I appreciate that. I'll give you Egypt. Go ahead. So he takes off down and storms Egypt. Was it accurate in the details? Absolutely. But there was more to the prophecy. Do you remember I had you read out different phrases such as, I will scrape you bare to the rock. Or it will be a place to lay out what? Fishnets. How did that get accomplished? They're all hanging out on the island. As a matter of fact, they build that into the majority of the city. And for hundreds of years, they're thriving out on the island. How did that fulfill the prophecy? If you would have been born during that time, you would have said, no, prophecy's bogus. Never came about. Didn't happen. God was wrong. Is God ever wrong? No. So what happened? It says in 241 years later, Greece came in. And a man by the name of Alexander the Great, 
who we're all familiar with, yeah? We talked about him a lot last week. You guys remember this kid? 20 years old, takes over for his dad, Philip II, becomes the king of Macedon, which is the Greek states, and begins a massive campaign for 12 years of his life, from 20 to 32, where he died from mysterious causes. From 20 to 32, he goes through and does what no other commander in history has ever done, dominates the known world, extends the the distance, the territory, all the way to Punjabi, India. This is an amazing young man. And he was brutal, and he was brilliant, and he was a strategist. And if anyone can conquer anything, it's this guy. Well, 241 years later, he comes cruising down to head towards Egypt. And on the way, he stops at the Phoenician cities. Tyre's history is the Phoenician people. They were the seafaring people. If you go back in the ancient world, with people that first started making boats and going out on the seas and traveling around and navigating, those were the Phoenician people. He stops by, realizes, I'm battling the Persian kingdom. Do you guys remember last week when we talked about the next kingdom that comes up? It went from Babylon to the Medo-Persian kingdom to the Greek kingdom. That handoff was in the middle of the struggle in our story today. The one kingdom, Greece, is fighting against Persia, Darius III. They're going head to head. Alexander just took over a massive battle in 333 BC, the Battle of Isis. He just finished devastating Persia. They're regrouping for another fight, and he's moving on to hit Egypt. Well, he realizes, I don't want them to have a navy if I don't have a navy. What if Persia grabs all their ships, swings around, starts attacking me? I need a navy. So as he's going through, he sees the Phoenician cities, and he says, all right, you guys, I'm not going to take you over. I just want to move on through. You're all fine over there on the island. Just give me your navy. I don't need you. You're working for my enemy. So submit your navy over to me and I'll just move on. What do you think they said? No. So he sends ambassadors over to the island. Hey, guys, I'm not so sure you know who you're messing with. Let me just give you a real quick heads up. Alexander the Great, pretty big deal. Okay? He's kind of sweeping through and kind of killing everyone. So I'm just going to give you a real quick suggestion. You might want to just hand over the ships. They killed all his ambassadors and threw them over the wall. Now Alexander's mad. You don't want him mad at you. Now he's heading down towards Egypt, stops his movement, turns his whole army towards Tyre. Whoops. And he tears down the mainland with no problem whatsoever. It's not even a huge city anymore. Wipes it, devastates it, tears it down. And he looks at the island and he says, now I'm coming for you. He begins to head out and they're like, well, how are we going to take it? Don't you understand, Alexander? That place is impenetrable. There's a reason why Nebuchadnezzar bailed out and didn't go get him. Nobody wants to mess with them. Why even bother? Let's just move on. Well, now it's personal. The walls rise up as the island faces the mainland. The front walls rise straight out of the water, 150 feet in the, in the air. You can't beach it and then attack. You have straight walls. So you've got to land your ships and somehow get 150 feet up in the air. It's not going to work. So you can't take your ships over there because of two reasons. Not only do you have the wall problem, but the channel between you is 20 feet deep. So you can't march across it. You can't ride your horse across it. You've got to sail it. Problem, the winds. It creates a wind-whipping scenario that breaks all the boats. So you can't even sail in there. 
So they go, Alexander, we can't sail and attack them. We can't walk across and attack them. What do you think we're going to do? Well, of all people to come up with a brilliant strategy, it's Alexander the Great. So he said, we'll build a bridge. He's like, build a bridge? What are you talking about? You can't build a bridge a half mile. Really? See that city? Tear it down. Dump it in the water. They began to tear down every wall and start hurling everything into the ocean. What was the prophecy? It's going to throw all the rubble where? In the sea. Takes the whole city, begins to throw all the rocks, all the buildings, pulling it down, throwing it into the thing to create a thin causeway to go out a half mile. Well, then on top of it, he puts timber and all the stuff that he's pulling down from the houses. Problem is, a storm comes up and knocks it all over. Think he stops? Absolutely not. You don't stop Alexander the Great. So he says, I'll build it back better. He begins to tear more of the city down, scraping it clean. You understand the prophecy? What's the prophecy? I will make you a bare rock. He scrapes everything clean, hurls it all in there. By the time he is done, at the end of the story, I'm going to tell you, the causeway is 200 feet wide for a half mile. That's a huge deal. He scraped everything off the mainland, dumped it into the water, but it didn't work out so easy. As soon as he began to put all this timber in there, the Tyrians, the people from Tyre, they got to fight this guy and shut him down. So they have their ships sail in by him and they're shooting arrows and killing their guys and they're thinking up new war machines to try to shut him down. Well, one of the things they decided was incredibly brilliant. They realized that the majority of the stuff on the surface was wood. And he was building huge siege towers that you could roll. The guys could push towards the walls once they got close enough. So you got these massive towers made out of wood so they'd be light enough to roll. So they make a barge. The Tyrians make this huge barge, fill it full of flammable liquid. Take it, tow it by another boat, get it going as fast as they can, and then let it go. It starts hurtling towards the causeway. Right when it gets near, they shoot all their flaming arrows... Boom, ignite the whole boat. It's a huge fireball, crashes right into the causeway and begins to burn up all of his siege towers. They're cheering. They think they've won, but Alexander won't stop. He keeps going and keeps going, rebuilds his siege towers. It's a seven-month battle. He just does not give up, keeps attacking, going forward, no matter what they try to do. They created huge logs swinging on chains to knock off his people and break his towers. They were coming up with brand new inventions just to shut this guy down. But he wouldn't be stopped. When they finally got to the walls, he put in enough material to get in the walls, and there's all these fights with the naval fleets, and he stopped their navy by going and getting a mercenary navy that he paid for, brought them in to shield all his men. Then the waves were going to kill it, or kill all his ships, so he decided to tear down all the trees of Lebanon, drop them in the water as breakers. I mean, this guy's brilliant. When he finally gets to the walls, the men then try to scale the walls to climb up and attack it. And the Tyrians were ready. They had at the top of all their walls huge kettles full of sand. They heated them up to liquid form and poured them all over the guys climbing the walls. And they instantly got burned alive in their armor. Shut down the whole attack. Now what's he going to do? Tries an attack around the back. His ships are lost in the storm. He's completely lost, but he won't give up. So ultimately, he finds a weak spot in a wall, finds out that's where I'm going to attack. That's how I'm getting in. 
So I got to have some diversionary tactics. Sends all of the remaining ships around the whole island and they just start bombarding. Three days later, everybody bombards every side of the island so the tire doesn't know which way to defend. But he's only watching one spot. The minute they're distracted, he launches a full-scale assault and they break through the wall. They get into the city and now they are mad. Now it's bloodlust. Now it's, I'm going to kill everybody in sight. 7,000 men were killed that day in Tyre. 2,000 men were crucified that day. Only 400 Macedonians lost their lives or 400 Greeks. They went in and just did this horrible tirade of just destruction. It was so bad that the Sidonians who were hired to be mercenaries felt so bad for the Tyranians they smuggled out 13,000 of them. Even his own team went against him going, you're out of control, man. You're killing everybody. It's hor- We're no longer in battle. This is just vicious. You guys got to get out of here. Let 13,000 of them go. The remaining 30,000 were sold into slavery. And he devastated the city. What's interesting is the one thing he did that shut down Tyre for the future had nothing to do with warfare. He set up a brand new trade route through a city called Alexandria. And forever after that, it was the primary trade route and Tyre was no longer a big deal. But what about the place to put your fishnets? Thousand years later, they tried to have... Well, I should say, as a matter of fact, it was just a hundred and some years later. They tried to rebuild. Alexander's successor, Antigonus, destroyed him again. Thousand years later, the Muslims came in, destroyed it again. Then during the Crusades, the Christians destroyed it again. Then the Muslims destroyed it again, and they traded back and forth three times. Then Egypt took it. Then the Turks took it. Every time it's ever tried to rise again, it was destroyed. All the way up until recent times. As a matter of fact, it was just a fishing village. And it was only known for one thing. It had a very small group of people and it was only known for fishing trade and out on the rocks foundation where the water would lap up. Whenever it would draw back, they'd dry their fishnets out on the rocks. How's that for a fulfillment of prophecy? Even when they tried in recent days to rebuild the city, they got up to 110,000 people and a recent war knocked them back down to 3,500. No matter how much they try, God keeps shutting them down. So what does that have to do with our lives? Do you agree with me that God is accurate? Do you agree with me that God's word is true? Then if so, that has something to do with our lives right here, right now. If that is true, then what you read within these pages is reality. Not what the newspaper tells you. Not what you think you see, but what the Bible says is absolute reality. If so, then we better begin to read it. We better begin to know it. We better begin to study it. The problem is, as believers, we are making too many errors when it comes to reading the Word of God. We make one of two equal and opposite errors. Both of them are just as damaging. First error we make is we believe we're reading it for someone else. Oh, everything applies to somebody else. Doesn't apply to me. 
Oh, it applies to my neighbor. It applies to that guy across the hall. Oh, it applies to my wife. Doesn't apply to me. Oh, it applies to those Christians. Doesn't apply to non-believers. Oh, it only applies to non-believers. Doesn't apply to Christians. No matter how you do it, we find a way to distance ourselves from the text. And we don't believe it's talking to us. That is a massive error. The other side, we try to make everything apply to us out of context. We do the scripture dive, right? Every devotional, I'm going to open up the Bible. God's got something to say to me today. And we open it up until we find the one that we want, right? You open it up. Whoa, and you lose pages. You open it up and you're looking at the Bible and you immediately go, and God, what are you going to say to me right here, right now? That is a terrible way to read the Bible. That's not how you're supposed to do it. That's completely out of context and you're going to run into serious difficulty. You've got to read it in context, meaning the original author wrote to an original audience and had a point to make. But that doesn't mean you don't learn from it. It means that you picture in your mind God discipling someone, encouraging them, disciplining them, and you're standing right there. And picture God as he's teaching them, looking over at you and going, you're getting this, right? Do I need to correct you in the same way or is it okay that I corrected them? Do we need to all learn our own mistakes or can we learn from somebody else's mistakes? So when I tell them, don't you understand that's true for you, right? You don't sit there and distance yourself. You are in this. You're a human being just like they are. If I correct them, I'm correcting you. Are we all clear on that? See, it is very personal. It's very much true for us right here, right now. So what does that mean? Well, let me give you an exact way that it impacts us. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? That's in the New Testament, page 809. Let me give you an example on what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. The one thing that seems to really irritate God the most is pride, which is this idea that you're above and beyond it all. All this stuff that the Bible talks about, well, God will understand. It's really, it's not about you. God gets it. Come on. Okay, so I mislead people. I'm not a liar. So I've taken some stuff in my life. I'm not a thief. It's totally different with me. I mean, all those people out there, they're completely bogus. All those people, yeah, of course God better go get them. Man, guys like Hitler, oh, God, take him down, right? But not me. God understands me. It doesn't apply to me. Really? You sure? Because here's what I see in my Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says this. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Most of us listening to my voice do not believe that applies to us. What are you talking about? Of course I'm going to heaven. What do you mean? What did he just say? The heart that leads to that behavior will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's no wiggle room. That's it. That's the bad news, right? I mean, come on. We can all sit there and go, well, that's the Christian thing. I don't really believe the Bible. I don't care what you believe. It's true. 
And so whether you want to believe it or not, or you want to sit there, I don't know, I'm kind of examining whether or not it's accurate or not. Hey, examine all you want. It's still going to come true. And it's true for everyone. God is not grading on a curve. Oh, well, everyone else is an idiot, so he should let me off. There is one standard. It's Jesus Christ, and he's perfect. How you doing? Right? Not so good. Me either. That type of heart will not go to heaven. So if you're on that list and many of the other lists in Scripture, I guess what's going to happen? You only got one other place to go. That's a lake of fire. That's it. You go, Lance, that's awfully depressing. Yeah, it is. That's called bad news. But you can't have good news without the bad news, right? Because as much as we don't believe that, we don't believe the next portion of the verse. Have you read that one? It says in verse 11, and that is what some of you, what? Were. It's what you used to be. You're not anymore. Quit acting and living as if you are. Stop allowing your past to dictate your future. Stop allowing the enemy, who is an accuser, to come in and tell you that you're garbage. You're not that anymore. No, you're not perfect. No, you're still making mistakes. I get that. I have habitual sin in my life. I got problems going on. I got times where I rebel against God. Absolutely. But that is not who I am. That is not my identity. Because that is what we were. Are we fixed because we suddenly got better at doing stuff because we're more moral? Is that why we're fixed? No. The Bible says very clearly, what's the next line? It says, but you were what? Washed. You have been cleansed because of what you've done? No. What's the next phrase? You were what? Sanctified. That means made holy by Jesus Christ. You were what? Justified, that means made right in the sight of God, regardless of the fact of who you are. It's about who Jesus is. You have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified. And so have I. And if the other part is true, so is that. Stop living as if you're garbage. Because you're not garbage. Jesus died for that. And he died on purpose. That we might live free. We were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's because of him that we have hope. It's not about us. Is the Bible true or is it not true? If so, then it carries into all the other stuff, right? Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. What a man sows, that he will also reap. You think you're getting away with everything? Is that right? Because you're different, right? You can do whatever you want. It's never going to come back and get you because God understands. Really? It says, if you sow to your sinful nature, you will reap destruction. If you sow to the spirit, you will reap eternal life. Either that's true or it's wrong. And if it's true, it's true for you. What are you investing in? What are you doing with your life? Do you think there are no consequences? Of course there are. Ah, but if that is true, 
And so is Acts chapter 2, which says, Peter in Acts 2.36, he said, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Either that's true or it's not. If you want to be saved... That offer is on the table. You don't have to die for your sin. Jesus promised there's another way. And either he did or he didn't. And for those of you Christians that feel so defeated, to believe that you're not becoming different, to think I always struggle with the same sin, I'm not anymore like Jesus, I never seem to change, I've been a Christian for decades and nothing's changing. That is a lie. I believe the Bible. Philippians 1 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be what? Faithful to complete it. You will become like Jesus. How do I know that? Because it doesn't depend on you. The Holy Spirit will get you there. How is he going to do it? He's going to do it through your failure. He's going to do it through your mistakes. He's going to do it through your idiocy, just like me. He's going to take all that is the sum total of your life and make you more like Jesus. If the Holy Spirit is in your life, he will find a way. And even when you rebel, he will use that outcome to make you more like the son. Because that's how he builds believers. You are growing because the Bible tells me so. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a refreshment to know that you are true, that your word is solid and secure, that regardless of how we feel about it, Lord, it will stand the test of time. I just ask, Lord, that you would open up our eyes to be partners with you in the process of transformation. That instead of consistently fighting against you or believing that we are the exception, that we would submit under your teaching. Would you open up our lives to receive you more? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.